0: Welcome to Rising, we have a great show for you today and we're kicking off the week with the wonderful Bacha Ungar Sargan. Bacha, great to have you back
1: with us. Good morning, Robbie. Thank you so much for having me back and good morning to all of you watching. Um, we're opening with some actually, frankly, disturbing news Um, There's new details coming out of Uvalde, Texas, about what went wrong that day. A new investigative report on the Robb Elementary School shooting spreads blame across every law enforcement agency that responded to the attack, according to The Washington Post. The 77-page Texas House report condemned agencies on the scene, saying that a void of leadership could have contributed to the loss of life as injured victims waited over an hour for help nearly 400 local state and federal law enforcement officers were at the scene that day none of whom took charge of the response according to the report back when the
0: shooting happened governor greg abbott had pledged five million dollars of state money in the form of grants to public health officials for mental health providers advocates and other personnel However, according to the Post, grieving families under a financial stress have said that information on how to access public or private funds has been unclear or non-existent. While the Texas DA has not responded to how the money will be administered at all, which is you know just a, another failure on top of everything else. And obviously, last week we saw some of that uh, hallway footage from, uh, what was it? the Austin Statesman, I believe, uh, the newspaper that had r- obtained that, written about it, released a lot of it. You know, seeing all of these police officers standing around for what we now know to be about 77 minutes, um, just horrifying failure to act contrary, again, I, I've said this so many times on the show it bears repeating, contrary to what they were instructed and trained to do. it's It's obviously, it's, I think difficult to say, well, you have to be brave in the moment. It's a, it's a very daunting, terrifying situation with this, this uh, heavily armed man uh, in a classroom. But they are instructed not to wait, not to formulate a plan, just like throw your, yourself at the shooter. Is the instructions to all police in, in situations like this and actually was the exact instructions to these police. And they, they decided not to do that anyway.
1: Yeah, it seems like the only um, response team that did that was the BORTAC agents who showed up on the scene, the Border t- border Control Tactical Unit um, who showed up and then at some point just stopped waiting, stopped listening to Chief Arundando, ignored the chain of command and went in. Um, you know, that seems to be what one is supposed to do in these situations. I will say, Robbie, um, learning um, about reading this report, learning about what was in it, um, one thing that did come out was that um, the most of the killing was done right in the beginning, mm-hmm. meaning that there wasn't um, shooting that went on after that where he was shooting at children, shooting at teachers. It seems that the murderer did most of the shooting right in the beginning and that the people who died as a result of the, the law enforcement waiting, these epic failures, died because they could have been helped at the hospital. And I think that that is very important. I mean, obviously, um, these are such huge, huge failures failures. And I, I cannot imagine what the families are going through. I mean, it's so hard to each for us and we're not related to them mm-hmm. to learn every moment about, you know, what could have been done to help more people, what could have been done. But 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 um, it doesn't seem like if they had actually acted the way they should have, they would have. The, the report says they wouldn't have been able to save most of the people um, who were killed, most of the children who were killed. And, and to me, I, I don't want to say that that's small comfort. But to me, that does change a little bit um, um, the calculus. And and the other point I wanted to make was, you know, this is going to sound maybe. um, Tell me what you think about this, Robbie. I I watched that footage. I'm horrified like everybody else. Um, But I see confusion more than cowardice. I see mistakes in judgment Rather than a failure to want to help, I think Chief Arundondo made a single massive error where he thought that the shooter was barricaded and that all danger was over, and that was a huge tactical error. And then it just compounded after that. But, but, um, I, you know, for for law enforcement, they're they're going to mm-hmm. have to carry that for the rest of their lives. I mean, the burden of that failure. I, I just. I don't know if this is a betrayal of the families to say, I can't help but feel for them as well, even while watching them in the moments of these like epic failures as the time is passing on. And I'm so enraged and so angry. How could they not go in? But, you know, I can't imagine having to carry that for the rest of my life. What do you think, Robbie? I mean, I hear
0: that and I, you know, we we see the footage and it's hard to, Try to even guess. Well, what is you know what is going through your mind as you're down this hallway from a mass shooter who's in this classroom? You know there are victims in there. Maybe you presume they're dead already. And you know what? We, we can't really read their faces. We can read their faces and pretend like we know what they're thinking, but we really don't. But then I have to square that against the fact, the fact that bystanders outside the school, parents, yeah. were were clawing eyes out to get into the school, were, were, that a woman broke free of the restraint, the police had restrained her, broke free, went into the school, got her kids out. They were fighting to get in to do something. So if they had that, if, if, the, if the, the non-state actors had this uh, drive to, go to, to do what you're supposed to do, which is everybody rush the shooter, that makes it so much harder for me to understand. We don't, we don't if we don't, cowardice, incompetence, whatever it is. It just seems like such a gross failure. Given that other people wanted to do something, they yeah. wanted to help, and they were being prevented from doing so. That's the only good the cops were doing for an hour was actually marshaling their forces to prevent the parents from from. And it, you know, it's one thing to prevent the parents from interfering because you have it under. You're taking care of it. But they weren't taking care of it, so they were, it, it's just, it's, so, that, so that, that really makes it harder even so for me to, to have anything but really a lot of contempt for, uh, for, for what was done and, and how it happened. And even if, as you say, uh, I, I find it plausible that Sooner action m- might not have saved uh, a lot more lives. I think it, according to that report, it sounds like it, it could have helped a little bit um, if some people had gotten to the hospital sooner and then any, but anyway, every minute that even the people who survived anyway had to spend in that classroom, you know, they, they will be, you know, reliving that in their nightmares, in therapy sessions for the rest of their lives. Every minute it could have been cut shorter, even if it didn't make a difference in the death toll, I, I would think, you know, would have should have been is something also to consider.
1: Yeah, no, those are all really, really good points. I mean, yeah, of course, every life is infinitely precious. So anyone who died on the way to the hospital, that death, those deaths are on. You know, law enforcement Mm -hmm. and that epic failure. Um, You know, you're bringing up a really important point, which is the parents, you know, wanting to charge in there, wanting to save their children. And, you know, it's actually reignited a conversation about, um, you know, vigilante justice, Mm -hmm. I think, which is increasingly relevant in different contexts. Um, Over this weekend, uh, a debate about gun carrying lit up social media after a shooting in Indianapolis left three dead, but was stopped by an armed witness who gunned down the mass shooter and that man was called a good Samaritan by the authorities who arrived on the scene. So Robbie where are you on um, you know vigilante justice um, <laughs> especially in moments like this where you know we're, we're confronted with the epic failures sometimes of law enforcement
0: right we're frequently confronted by it this is you know this is something I, I hear a lot of um, is sort of progressives who want very strict gun control and they say, oh well you know if armed citizens are so important you know why do they why does an armed citizen never stop a crime like actually there's Countless <laughs> examples of that happening. Routine examples. You can find so many examples. This is another one. The police said this is a great example. The police said more lives could have been lost if this this person who was carrying legally uh, was doing everything right, saw that there was an active shooter situation, intervened and neutralized the shooter. You know, so responded to the crisis correctly, took out the right person. We always hear that oh, there's going to be confusion. What if they shoot the wrong person? What if you know that kind of thing? No, there are there are examples of armed citizens uh, uh, taking the right action and and this was one of those situations obviously you know you can think that's not the way it's supposed to be the the law enforcement is supposed to handle this but yeah at a time when law enforcement I, I think is really is really, F- failing, and, and a time where law enforcement is maybe needed, you where know, I think you and I are both very concerned. You're in New York. I'm in D.C. Um, I'm very concerned about the rising crime we're facing in many uh, American cities, not all American cities, but many of them. Um, and, and, and I think a lot of people have the attitude, what can be done? Should it be more police? Uh, but, but then that argument is harder to make when in moments of crisis, you see police acting so irresponsibly as they did in Uvalde.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I've also um, seen reports um, that, you know, criminals will frequently say that, you know, the presence of a gun on scene will stop them. Or if they mm-hmm. know if the person there has a gun, they would not have, you know, engaged in in, in criminal behavior in that context, etc. I mean, I've never actually heard a criminal say that, but I've read reports <laughs> um, that that is something that they do say. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it comes down to like, are you going to put your trust in the state to protect you? Or do you want that level of autonomy to do your best to protect yourself in certain contexts? to protect your own family to protect your church you know there was a case of a you know somebody carrying in a church who who put down a mass shooter um, i think that was like 6 months ago something yeah. like that we you do see these stories coming up and it's very hard not to feel like of course the right term for that is good samaritan because that person saved lives
0: yeah well stay with us we'll tell you what's on our radars coming up next bachea what's on your radar
1: Well, last week, a joint survey by The New York Times and Siena College found that the Democrats were in deep trouble with some crucial voting blocks that had once been their mainstays. For the first time, Democrats had a larger share of support among white college graduates than among non-white voters. The survey found that the Democrats are losing the multiracial working class to the Republicans by 11 points, while winning the college educated by 23. As some of us have been pointing out, ad nauseum perhaps, we don't have a political divide in this country. We have a class divide that separates college-educated elites from the working class. And the left has become nearly completely aligned with the college-educated. How did this happen? Turn on CNN or MSNBC or open the New York Times, and you'll be told that the fault lies with a messaging problem. Why do Democrats suck at messaging, asks Vanity Fair. Do Democrats have a messaging problem, asks The New York Times. Yes, Democratic messaging sucks, but it's harder to fix than you think, the New Republic reassures you. But the truth is the exact opposite. The problem isn't the Democrats' messaging, but their priorities. Their messaging is actually impeccable. It signals very accurately what their values are and, by extension, who they view as their base. Not the multiracial working class, but people with much more elevated concerns. Things like climate change, gun control, and abortion. The work from home pajama cast with the luxury of caring about climate change and January 6th, while their neighbors wonder if they should put meat on the table or gas in the car because there isn't enough money for both. As the New York Times put it, the confluence of economic problems and resurgent cultural issues has helped turn the emerging class divide in the Democratic coalition into a chasm, as Republicans appear to be making new inroads among non-white and working-class voters, perhaps especially Hispanic voters, who remain more concerned about the economy and inflation than abortion rights and guns. Working-class voters of all races are hyper-focused on historic gas prices, which are up 60%. As a result, inflation reached a four-decade high of 9.1% in June. It's not just gas, of course. Eggs, chicken, meat, and electricity are all up by double digits. Two-thirds of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. And these people used to be the Democrats' base. A March Wall Street Journal poll found that 35% of Black, Hispanic, and Asian American voters were feeling the sting of inflation compared to just 28% of white voters. Among Black women and Hispanic men, the proportion was even higher at 44%. For those making less than $60,000, it was the worst, with half feeling the the pain of inflation compared to just 13% of those making over $150,000. Want to know why the working class of all races are abandoning the Democrats? That's why. Charles Stallworth, a union railroad worker out in Houston, polled 100 of his fellow blue-collar workers for a piece in Newsweek. He found the same thing. To a person, their top two concerns were crime and inflation. You know what no one mentioned, writes Charles? January 6th. Or LGBT rights. Or abortion. Charles's findings and The Times' poll echo another poll tweeted by Rasmussen a few weeks ago, which found the same disconnect, this time between voters and journalists. The top concerns of voters were rising gas prices, inflation, the economy, and violent crime. But while voters are busy worrying about mundane things like empty bank accounts, carjackings, and a spike in homicides, the journalists surveyed were occupied by much loftier issues like the war in Ukraine, January 6th, and at the top of the list, climate change. The world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change, and your biggest issue is how are we going to pay for it, they like to say when anybody pushes back. You know who the world has ended for? Someone who's been murdered someone who can't afford to feed their kids. Here's the thing. The interests of the laptop class aren't just different from the interests of the working class. They're in a fundamental tension. Things like defund the police, open borders, COVID lockdowns, and the war in Ukraine make affluent progressives feel good about themselves while being a literal tax on the working class who have to pay for these vanity morals. The Democrats' new base has a penchant for misreading its economic privilege as a sign not of good fortune, but of higher moral purpose, which they then demand that others pay for, others with far fewer means than they have. Too much environmental policy comes out of this same playbook. Climate change, of course, should be mitigated, but those efforts must be equitably distributed, to use a word that the left loves, and that is just not what's been going on. There's a deep tension between the utopian environmental goals in proposals like the Green New Deal and the interests of the working class. Consider how many jobs were killed when Biden canceled the Keystone XL pipeline. Thousands. These jobs, like many oil fracking and drilling jobs, would have been good union jobs that secure middle-class lives for working-class Americans compared to the low-wage, non-unionized jobs of the green sector. California is a good harbinger for what the green utopia would look like in practice. The greenest of the states in the union is also, not coincidentally, the one with the greatest income inequality. Since 2011, the cost of electricity in California has increased five times as fast as the rest of the U.S. Rising electricity prices in California have disproportionately impacted low-income families, resulting in what the esteemed environmental lawyer Jennifer Hernandez coined the Green Jim Crow." Black and Latino households are spending 20 to 40 percent more of their household incomes on energy than white households. In 2020, nearly four million California households faced energy poverty, thanks largely to the policy preferences of Californians with household incomes 80 percent higher than the national average. In the name of their own virtue, progressives are making their neighbors poorer, and anyone who objects is given a lecture or told to buy an electric car. Don't have 70 bucks in your bank account to fill up your car with gas? No problem. Just buy a $60,000 electric vehicle. We put a $12,000 rebate and built back better. Nothing summed this up better than John Kerry, President Biden's climate czar, traveling to accept an environmental award in a private jet last year. It's the only choice for somebody like me who is traveling the world to win this battle was how a visibly annoyed Kerry defended himself to a reporter last year. A climate hero like me? Travel commercial? (laughs) It's true that inflation right now is a global problem. Laying it all at President Biden's feet is unfair. But whatever he could do to make it worse, he has done, starting with canceling the Keystone pipeline and up through this month when the Wall Street Journal reported the administration plans to block 11 new oil lease sales for offshore drilling over the next five years. Defenders of the Democrats point to Build Back Better as proof that it's the Democrats who represent the interests of the middle class. But a huge part of that legislation, $500 billion or so, was allocated to combating climate change, much of it through handouts to corporations willing to go green. Fully $320 billion of that $500 billion was for tax credits to corporations that buy wind, solar, and nuclear power. This may have some limited benefit for the environment, but asking middle and working class Americans to hand over $300 billion in taxpayer dollars to corporations whose CEOs fly their own private jets is exactly the kind of elite moral preening at the expense of the lower classes that deserves to be met with significant side eye. So it's more than a little ironic that when Senator Joe Manchin refused to back any new spending on climate change last week due to rising inflation, Senator Bernie Sanders accused him of representing the very wealthy people in this country, not working families in West Virginia or America. President Biden, who as a candidate had the good sense to promise he would not ban fracking, is now governing like he's running to be president of lefty Twitter. Instead of doing everything he can to cut the cost of gas, the president is trying to cut 50% of emissions. This is a green war on the middle class. As Ralph Schoenhammer put it here on Rising last week, you cannot have a middle class without affordable energy. So, is there hope for the Democrats? To me, that's really the wrong question. The right question is: Is there hope for the multiracial working class? After all, it's not the job of labor to defend the professional aspirations of college-educated Democrats. It's the Democrats' job to defend labor, or at least it used to be. Yeah. So, what do you, what's your take on all of no, this, Robbie?
0: I'm, <laughs> I, I'm with you, Batya. I think the, uh, especially the emphasis on you know the the hazards of climate change, which I get are real. I I understand that climate change is a problem, and we should talk about strategies to mitigate the harms we're causing to the planet for future generations. But if your plan is immiserate everyone now to stave (laughs) off some theoretical or maybe likely, we don't know how likely the climate change, we don't know the extent of the climate change catastrophe, how soon it will happen and how dire it is. There's a range of predictions. Some of them, the yes, we're all dead in 12 years sounds a little bit fanciful because that never seems to pan out previously when it's you know forecasted and we exceed the forecast and then there's you know slight harms and then there's something in between again we should absolutely have reasonable solutions and conversations to address the scary stuff but you can't just expect everyone to starve and be miserable now you can't do it, it it's not a plan people will accept People don't, are not gonna vote for misery now unless they're very affluent and they're minimally af- affected by it, as you point out. That's why the people who, who so frequently sound the, the bell on, on it being a catastrophe and we have to do everything possible to, even to harm our economic growth or our opportunities right now, those are people who you know don't have to sacrifice anything every time and and who don't sacrifice anything when push comes to shove still take their private jet to the climate awareness summit
1: (laughs) right exactly and look i'm willing to say you know I'm gonna to extend to them the benefit of the doubt. I'm gonna say, look, they're not doing this cynically, right? They're right. not, you know, trying to immiserate you know working class Americans. They just seem to have this blind spot about their own privilege, misunderstanding it as virtue. But if you know, I'm willing to extend them that compassion and say, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna see you in the best possible life light. All I want is for them to extend a little bit of that compassion to the people who actually used to be their base, right? To the people who they used to see themselves as representing. That's really all I'm asking for. Is that too much to ask?
0: <laughs> not in my view, but uh, you know, I, I'm not a, I'm not one of the uh, the. Uh, uh, Identity obsessed leftists, you're correctly uh, uh, railing against or, or saying should maybe consider their priorities. How those priorities could even just be hurting the the uh, the uh, the likelihood of their coalition succeeding electorally. Right? It's just they're just presiding over this absolute. Uh, collapse of the Democratic Party, whereby a smaller and smaller cabal of elite interests don't understand what the voters actually wanted. But, uh, but you're the person I, I turn to for, uh, for uh, guidance on how that project is going. So thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Robbie. We'll have more rising in just a minute.
1: Robbie, what is on your radar?
0: Well, at this late date in the pandemic, as COVID-19 has thankfully ceased to be a serious illness for most people who contract it, public health officials are still pushing masks and mask mandates on the populace. In fact, Los Angeles County is likely to bring back its indoor mask mandate at the end of the month, and Seattle is considering doing the same. Dr. Ashish Jha, the White House's coronavirus response coordinator, thinks this is a great idea and will, quote, really make a difference. This time, listen to what he said here.
2: CDC has very clear guidance on this as well through their, through their COVID community levels. And, and the CDC recommendation is that when you're in a high zone, that sort of orange zone, as LA County is, uh, you know, people wearing masks indoors is really important and it really will make a difference.
0: Josh says that wearing masks indoors is important, will really make a difference. He claims that the science is clear. The science is on the side of compulsory masking. So let's just call this what it is. It's a lie. It's misinformation, in fact, <laughs> to use that term. At present, it is clear that the common cloth masks that were required in many cities and states throughout the pandemic do very little to stop the spread of COVID-19. Dr. Leanna Wen, a medical analyst for CNN, not someone who did, didn't take the, the pandemic seriously enough, she called them little more than facial decorations. Wearing a surgical or N95 mask, n 95 mask likely offers some protection against catching COVID-19, or at least that's the current thinking. But the new variants are extremely contagious and very successful at evading both mitigation efforts and immunity acquired from vaccination and prior infection. Social media is filled with sob stories of extremely cautious people who lament that they did everything right They practiced social distancing. They wore masks everywhere. They didn't go to the movies. They stopped getting haircuts. They worked from home permanently. They don't let their kids go to birthday parties. What happened? Eventually they got COVID. I mean, look at some of these examples I found on social media. Just tested positive for COVID one month to the day from the first time I had it. I never stopped wearing a KN95 indoors. I took precautions, even though my doctor said I should be fine for three months, sharing so people know it can happen as a reminder to keep taking care I said on this show before, but it bears repeating, COVID is a disease. It's not a moral failing, it's not a sin. You don't get it because you're a bad person. Increasingly, you can't really control whether you get it or not. The idea that with the right amount of dedication to the cause, you can avoid it, it's an illusion. It's a powerful one, but it's an illusion all the same. Some public health officials now, they actually do understand that it's an illusion and they understand that the increase in cases is not resulting in more deaths or out of control hospitalizations. Listen are these two public health experts talking about COVID cases in L.A.
3: Our COVID situation is, it reminds me of that movie Good Morning Vietnam, when he was talking about the weather continued blankety blankiness. It's just the same. It's not changed. It's been the same. It's like two months of the same. You can see countywide numbers with the top graph. It's just, you know, it's like plateaued and it's not going down. It's sort of It trickle up a little but really not much it's just been like that and we're getting thousands of cases per week across the county the numbers at lac COVID positive tests have continued to go up but this isn't because we're seeing a ton of people with symptomatic disease getting admitted if you go to the bottom graph it's the same thing we're seeing a lot of people with mild disease and urgent care or ed who go home and do not get admitted And of those who are admitted, they're 90% of the time not admitted due to COVID. Only 10% of our COVID positive admissions are admitted due to COVID. Virtually none of them go to the ICU. And when they do go to the ICU, it is not for pneumonia. They are not intubated. They are not these horrible 100% FIO. We haven't seen one of those since since February.
0: That was footage from a recent town hall meeting featuring public health officials affiliated with LA County and the University of Southern California. I wanna play one more short clip from that discussion. Here it is.
3: All I can tell you is we're not seeing severe COVID and we haven't for quite some time. Also, I really do like going to the gym in the morning. It makes me feel healthy.
4: And you can certainly do that while masked after wednesday it is theoretically after
3: possible to go to the gym while masked it is however much more difficult to vigorously exercise Wow yeah i i play basketball and one of my teammates um, wears an n95 throughout the whole game oh. i don't know how he does it wow that is dedication
5: right?
0: <laughs> well they know how obnoxious how difficult it is to wear one of those masks all the time. They don't want to do it. They don't think it's necessary for the law to require you to do so. Unfortunately, the decision isn't up to reasonable people. It's up to, in LA County, Barbara Ferrer, who is the director of that city's public health department and a COVID restrictions zealot. She is unelected, she is unaccountable, and she thinks masks are nothing more than a slight nuisance at worst. Here she is discussing them back in April.
4: But but I want to point out that Masking is,
5: you know, at most an annoyance, Uh, and uh, really particularly masking uh, to take care of other people who are much more vulnerable
4: seems like a very good idea to me. So I'm going to continue to encourage that people keep those
1: masks on.
0: No one gets to vote on this. If you don't agree with her, it doesn't matter. She can't be voted out of office. She was never voted into office. An unelected, unaccountable public health bureaucracy in various parts of the country still wants to force everyone under their purview to wear masks and practice other forms of social distancing, and they'll say it's because the science means it has to be so, even though we know that's not the case. You can bet, however, top doctors in the Biden administration would like to do the same, though I think they seem to know the public has absolutely no appetite for it. Biden, Dr. Fauci, Rochelle Walensky, Ashish Jaha thought for a moment there was any chance they could get away with it. You bet we'd have a national mass mandate in place. For how long? I don't know. Maybe forever. Because forever is going to be how long uh, we're dealing with COVID, uh, Bacha. And I'm just, uh, I, I was hoping every time I do a radar on mass, I hope it's the last time. But, uh, <laughs> but the, 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 just the, ignorance that uh, I, I saw from Dr. Jaha on the Sunday uh, shows uh, this weekend, you know, it's we know what the science says. This helps. So yes, it's a great idea to require this. But this, no one, no municipality is requiring the KN95 mask. They're just requiring any mask, because they know requiring the KN95 mask, I think, is, is a bridge too far. But if you're, not, if you're not requiring those masks, there's no point because the, the, the weaker masks are annoying and also have practically no benefit. Then that's not like my fringe, like anti-COVID restrictions, crazy person opinion. That's an opinion that, that the mainstream health officials now, now hold. So it just seems so stupid.
1: Well, you may be sick of delivering these, Robbie, but I don't know where we would be without the classic Robbie mask takedown. <laughs> so I, for one, I'm always a little bit happy to see it in the news. Um, I will just add, you know, I've been flying a lot lately and something you notice is you get on the plane and about 50 percent of first class is masked, you know, and then about 25 percent mm-hmm. of business class is masked and then no one else is wearing it. And I just think that that really speaks to what this is, which I love that, which she said, "A decoration for the face. It's a virtue signal that you can wear on your face, you know, to signal your belonging to a certain caste that had the luxury of, you know, taking COVID as seriously as it did for as long as it did, right?" Um, so I, I'm totally with you, Robbie, and I'm so glad that you keep your, you know, pointing out the hypocrisy here and just the ridiculousness.
0: Yeah, I too have been uh, flying a lot lately, and yeah, the planes have fewer and fewer, uh, especially of just ordinary people. Uh, you're right. It's it's maybe the Elites are still doing, it, especially if they can signal to you that they're doing it. If they're around everyone else, they're still going to wear it. They want to make sure you know they didn't vote for for Trump. Um, you know, their are Elizabeth Warren people at heart. I think is the uh, is the political core political identity of a, of, a, of a permanent uh, masker. But uh, anyway, we'll see if. If these uh, mandates come back uh, anywhere else other than L.A., I mean, if you're still in L.A., I guess flee for your lives. But I'm a little bit worried uh, worried about D.C. because our mayor has certainly uh, brought them back as her as her schedule permits. I know she has a birthday coming up, so she'll probably wait until after that. But then it's then it's then it's any guess.
5: Brutal, brutal, Robbie.
0: (laughs) All right. We'll have more rising uh, right after this. Stay tuned. A senior advisor to the Iranian supreme leader told Al Jazeera that Iran is technically capable of making a nuclear bomb, but had not decided whether to build one. This comes after Biden's four-day trip to the Middle East, where he vowed to stop Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. Professor, author, and executive vice president at the Quincy Institute, Trita Parsi, is with us to discuss. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So do you think this comment is accurate and Iran, in fact, is capable of making a nuclear weapon but has not decided to greenlight such a project?
4: Yes, this is already what we have known. This is uh, aligning itself quite accurately with what the U.S. intelligence agencies as well as other intelligence agencies have said, which is that at this point, the Iranians have enough 60 percent enriched uranium to be able to build one nuclear weapon. They may actually have a bit more. Uh, Whether they then, of course, have the full technical capability of going through all the tests and everything else remains to be seen. The question is not whether they have it. We knew they did. The question is why the senior advisor to the Iranian Supreme Leader decided to give an interview in which he stated this. What kind of signal is he trying to send with this statement?
1: So what is the answer to that question, Dr. Parsi? What is the signal he's sending?
4: I think the signal they're sending is that as uh, President Biden has gone to the Middle East, they've been talking a lot about organizing the Middle East against Iran, isolating Iran, containing Iran, talk about the Iranian threat. This is a typical counter response by the Iranians, which is that if you're going to treat Iran like a threat, then Iran actually is going to be more threatening. Uh, And moreover, mindful of the way that the nuclear talks have solved, the Iranians are reminding the United States that if the United States uh, is not showing flexibility, uh, just as much as Biden recently said that he would be open to using military force if the Iranians don't come back into the agreement fully, the Iranians are sending a similar message to the United States saying, if the United States doesn't come back into the agreement, which Biden hasn't done since Trump left, then Iran has the capability of going to the bomb
0: it seems like we're going down familiar pathways here our stated goal prevent iran from getting a nuclear weapon uh our our likely accomplishment uh make them make it more likely that they're reasonable for them to pursue a policy of acquiring a nuclear weapon because of our diplomatic or strategic blundering is that fair
4: i think yes and the big mystery is here is how come the biden administration seems to have completely forgotten how to conduct effective diplomacy, Uh, mindful of the fact that Biden was the vice president when Obama actually did conduct effective diplomacy, at least in the case of Iran. Mm -hmm. The manner in which the Biden administration has pursued this is quite dramatically different from that of uh, the choice of the Obama administration. From everything to uh, creating the atmospherics, the manner in which the president is much more comfortable talking about the military threat, these are very, very different rhetorical tools Uh, and diplomatic tools that Biden administration is using compared to the Obama administration. And the difference, of course, is Obama was successful, and thus far Biden has not been successful.
1: Well, Dr. Parsi, couldn't somebody argue that the Middle East is simply a different place than when President Obama was in office? I mean, in a sort of post-Abraham Accords world where you have um, a new anti-Iran alliance forming between Israel, the UAE, and pretty soon probably Saudi Arabia as well, that the old toolbook is just no longer relevant because the Middle East has shifted so much?
4: Well, the Middle East has shifted a little bit. But the Abrams Accord is actually the old toolbox. It's the old toolbox in which we're creating blocks in the region, we're taking sides, we're dividing the region, and by that we're cementing conflict. Uh, What the Obama administration did through multilateral diplomacy, in the case of Iran, at least, is that they opened up the pathway to actually be able to resolve these tensions rather than cementing them. It's a mystery to me as to why the Biden administration has decided to continue the legacy of the trump administration in the middle east which has been the abram support rather than go back to the manner in which the uh, obama administration actually opened up not only pathways for diplomacy but perhaps most importantly open up pathways for the united states to bring troops home from the middle east if you listen carefully to what biden said during his trip it was he was saying we're here to stay we're not gonna leave well guess what the american people want to leave the middle east they don't want to have this high level of military troops in the region because it entraps the United States into more wars. So uh, again, it's a mystery to me why they have chosen not only a path that hasn't worked, but also one that clearly is rejected by the American public.
1: So let's actually talk about the president's trip to the Middle East a little bit more. The president actually came in for some criticism, specifically for first promising to reduce contact because of the pandemic and then shaking hands with former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And then he got into hot water for not shaking hands, but for a fist bump with, you know, Saudi Crown Prince MBS after promising to be tough on Saudi Arabia following the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, But as you say, Doctor, um, Biden doubled down on the importance of a U.S. alliance In the Middle East, while in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, on Saturday. So let's watch a clip and then we're going to get your reaction to that, Dr. Parsi.
3: Let me state clearly that the United States is going to remain an active, engaged partner in the Middle East. As the world grows more competitive and the challenges we face more complex, it is only becoming clear to me that how closely interwoven America's interests are with the successes of the Middle East. We will not walk away and leave a vacuum to be filled by China, Russia,
0: or Iran. Hmm. What do you think
5: about
4: that? Well, first on the fist bump, I think that whole episode is frankly embarrassing. I can imagine it being like a bad episode of Veep, in which the advisors (laughs) are debating with each other, should they fist bump, should they use the elbow, should they handshake? And as you can imagine, it just develop disastrous but on the core which i think you have to say this is more important you know the fist pump is going to get a lot of attention and i think it was embarrassing about but the bigger issue is you know after last year saying that this his withdrawal from afghanistan marks an end to an era of regime change wars and disinvolvement in the middle east he's now back hat in hand in riyadh an embarrassing fist bump with a Uh, Crown Prince of uh, Saudi Arabia, which he had said he would not meet with at all just a couple of weeks ago. And he's now promising that the United States is going to remain engaged in the Middle East. Now, let me be clear. The U.S. remaining engaged in the Middle East diplomatically, trade, absolutely uh, uh, a good thing for the United States to do. But what he is talking about, or at least what the audience there is listening for, is not trade and diplomacy. They're looking for America's military commitment to the Middle East. And that again, is a commitment that the American public has turned against and something that Biden himself had turned against just months ago. So the question really is why this embarrassing turnaround, not just with a fist bump, but with the core of the policy of the United States going back militarily into East.
0: Hmm. Well, Dr. Parsi, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it.
4: Thank you so much for having me
0: and we'll be back with more rising right after this.
1: Weekend protests over the police killing of 20-year-old Minneapolis man Andrew Tequel Sunberg turned heated when demonstrators were confronted by a single mother who says Sunberg shot into her apartment while she cooked dinner for her two young children inside. Let's watch. <laughs> His it was a terror. I'm sure it was this a is terror.
2: Okay.
3: is not okay.
1: You're not alive.
3: Okay.
2: Shut up.
0: You you just let it go. Grief yeah, in silence.
6: This, this is not okay. Okay. not okay. This is not a George Floyd situation.
5: George Floyd was un- unarmed. He was unarmed. You're alive. This is not okay. My kids
4: have to deal with this and probably have a mental illness because they almost lost their life. There's bullet holes in my kitchen in because he sat in the f- hallway
3: watching my move. This wishes this I wish it never happened either. That, I don't have a place to call home. I can't She's sleep
4: that. that night. She's obviously going through a moment.
2: This is
3: not okay.
4: This is, this is what
2: they want to show on the TV. She's obviously going through a moment. This, this is, not moment.
3: is
5: not okay. Just go home. Go home.
4: No, but
1: you did not come. He did not. your life did, did not come and fix it back. This is not the time. This is not the time It wasn't even.
6: It don't matter. It don't matter. It's been okay for me. Don't don't put your get away. No, because you think don't it's okay to get my kids in the
3: car. My kids in the car. My black kid
4: is in the car. He tried to kill me in front of my kids. He tried to kill me in front of my kids.
0: So here's what we know so far 24 year old arabella yarborough called 911 last wednesday night after she says sunberg fired multiple rounds into her apartment around 9:30 p.m and you can see the damage there in those pictures according to a search warrant sunberg shot at responding officers and then barricaded himself inside the apartment complex resulting in a six-hour standoff which ended early thursday morning when sunberg was shot and killed by uh, swat snipers Sunberg's parents have retained prominent civil rights attorney Ben Crump and Jeff Storms. They say the 20-year-old was suffering a mental health crisis and did not deserve to be, quote, picked off like an animal from a rooftop. Joining us now to discuss is my colleague at Reason Magazine, Associate Editor Liz Wolf. Welcome back to Rising, Liz.
6: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for discussing this very uh, obviously disturbing incident and, and disturbing video footage. And I think what you know what the woman uh, says a comment she makes that is pretty perceptive. She she actually does and uh, reference the kind of George Floyd protests and and says, well, that I understand why that was different. He was unarmed. He was you know in police. Custody, the police had control of the situation, and yet they killed or caused him to die anyway. Whereas in this situation, this, this person was dangerous, had shot up her, her living, uh, her living uh, uh, place. And t- to say that that's kind of the same thing or, or should inspire the same level of activism uh, was deeply offensive to her, understandably.
6: Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of reactions from people, especially people on the right, uh, who are basically saying, you know, how dare anyone give cover or protest the death of a violent criminal? This man was shooting into a woman's apartment and threatening her, her small children with his actions. I would caution people to not buy into, not to buy the false choice that's being presented here. I think we need to wait until body camera footage emerges and get a sense of whether or not police truly exhausted all possible options. Uh, A situation where they're using police snipers to to kill someone after a six hour standoff. I, for one, am am sort of curious about the degree to which it was possible for them to ensure Mm -hmm. that he was able to be uh, taken into custody alive. And then, you know, I think going through our court process, going through our court system is always the most appropriate thing. And I'm very skeptical of how police acted here. But at the same time, that does not mean that we can or should dismiss this woman's experience. And one of the things she brought up in this video was that if she had been killed and if it had been just another example of like urban violence, nobody would be caring and nobody would be protesting it. And I think that's something that a lot of people feel very palpably, the sense that a lot of violent gun crimes go really ignored by the press. And I know that's something we've talked about on Rising before, but
1: she's reacting to something that is very real and true.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, unlike so many victims of gun violence in urban settings, she's alive, and so her anguish as a mother, as a survivor, I think is so powerful to what you just spoke to, Liz. You know, why do why are the victims of that violence not deserving of our outrage and our protest and our hashtags and our activism? Um, you know, I, I, I what I would I, I would point out that um Um, witnesses on the scene who saw him standing out the window during the standoff with police did say that he still had the gun on him. So I I totally agree with you. It's entirely possible that the police did act uh, inappropriately. It's entirely possible they did not exhaust every avenue yet. It is important to point out that the mother and her two children were no longer being shot at at the time that Tico was killed. That's all really important to point out. But to me, um, that video of that woman and her anguish as a mother um she is speaking and she was screaming on behalf of you know the 54 percent of victims of gun violence who are black who we never talk about who never get to have a say who never get to have their voices heard and um it was so powerful because you know because she survived because she was a mother and the juxtaposition between the sympathy and the pity that the activists felt on behalf of someone who was her attacker versus the total lack of any sympathy. And, and they even attacked her, you know, saying to her, you're alive. This is not the time, right? Yeah. That juxtaposition that to nasty. me really, yeah, embodied the kind of moral failure of the progressive left when it comes to questions of crime and policing. What do you think about that?
6: I I, I sympathize with that a little bit. I do think the, the, the one of the things that really came to mind, uh, this video is absolutely going to go viral. You know, tons and tons of people, thousands or millions are going to view it. And one of the people in the video is sort of saying, hey, she's going through a moment like they're going to play this on the news. She's going through a moment with almost the implication being why is everybody pulling out their phones and recording this? This is like that nobody's at their best. Right. Nobody's in their finest hour right now. There's like such clear anguish coming through. And from the journalistic perspective, I want to to glimpse that anguish. Right. That gives important depth and color to the story. But I do think there's also this interesting component, which is like nothing about this situation maps cleanly to the narratives that we have. And to some degree, like the escalations that we see at the end are just absolutely horrible to watch. The degree to which people are sort of belittling this woman and diminishing her. The the situation that off the cuff this seems most similar to is the Makia Bryant shooting where, um, you know, this teenage girl was brandishing a knife and attempting to attack people. Uh, who I believe she lived with, and cops were called to the scene and ultimately fatally shot her. So that's, I think, perhaps the closest parallel as opposed to a George Floyd type situation. But I would also add that there are a few components of this that don't map cleanly onto narratives, one being that uh, Sunberg is actually, he's an adoptee. I believe he was adopted uh, as a child from Ethiopia. His parents are white. So when his parents stand up there with Ben Crump, it is not going to be the same image that we hmm. have with many of these other police killings of black men. It's going to be uh, two white parents. I'm not sure whether they're middle class or upper middle class or, or more working class, but the optics of that are different. The degree to which he's perceived as having come from the black community is going to be different. And then the fact that, I mean, this woman even specified, the victim specified in the video, and I find it so jarring that she had to say, oh, I'm white and native and black trying to basically communicate her racial affiliations and then identifying her children as black. To me that indicated another like sickness in American discourse, the sense that, oh, she has to give credence to her story and indicate that her kids are black because otherwise people might not care so much about them being victims of violent crimes. To me that was like another dimension that I think will be, um, will be parsed through in the coming days.
0: Mm-hmm. And I take your point uh, from a minute ago, Liz, that we have to be careful. I want to see the body cam footage. We want to be able to independently evaluate what police steps were taken. Maybe they were appropriate. Maybe they they weren't. We can't ever automatically assume one way or the other we shouldn't because, I mean, just to, we talked about Uvalde earlier in the show, right? The initial, uh, re- reaction. was every, Everybody thanked law enforcement for their swift action. I think Greg Abbott did. And then we found out, oh, well, you know, it kind of was a while before they went in. And, and now, you know, weeks later, we're at this is the most catastrophic law enforcement failure in modern American history. So we do need to wait. And it, it always behooves the public to wait and learn more than just have like a knee-jerk reaction to, oh, how dare they do take this action? Or of course they had to take this action. We don't really know yet. Um, And there's a lot of uh, 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 people, right, in both kind of ideological contingents who always want to spin it as supporting, you know, if you have a very anti-police narrative or very pro-law enforcement narrative, a right-left kind of thing.
6: Well, when the Parkland shooting happened, we thought that the school resource officers' actions were bad, basically running away from the scene. Uh, The Uvalde Police Department's response has absolutely uh, trumped that horrible situation, right? Both terrible, tragic examples of school shootings. And now Ubalde will, I think, forever be touted as this example of like massive police failure. But I do think one thing that's important when considering uh, the way we talk about gun violence in America is that we also had another shooting, this time at an Indiana mall over this Mm -hmm. past weekend, where I believe three people ended up dead. And that was actually, you know, a violent, disturbed, I think a young man, gunman, I'm not totally sure his age, uh, but very much fits the profile that we've seen in all of these other shootings the one we saw in Buffalo, the one we saw in Uvalde and the the situation of police violence here. um, And well, I should edit that uh, violence and then a police killing in response to that because that's the situation that we're discussing. Um, But yeah, the Indiana mall shooter was actually stopped by an armed bystander uh, who took out his gun and, and pacified the killer. And so again, it's a situation where you want to see this attacker being apprehended, being arrested, and actually getting his day in court and being taken to jail and going through the typical uh, you know, criminal proceedings that we have established in our country. But it's also an example to some degree of the fact that although we do have a heavily armed populace, there are sometimes situations where that is able to stop further bloodshed. Um, and, and so I think we're all left sort of feeling like our narratives are scrambled with all of this. Mm. I, I, don't, I don't feel comfortable coming down cleanly on the side of right or left, with any of this, more than anything else, it makes me really sad that um, we just clearly have an epidemic of horrible violence. We've seen like 12 cities in 2021 have new homicide records. People are really, uh, people are unwell. And I think people don't feel safe in their cities right now. And that's a really big problem that I think we're gonna see reflected in in our politics for a long time.
0: Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Liz, well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And stay tuned for more Rising right after
1: this. Facebook has hired dozens of ex-CIA and other government agents to run its content moderation, security and trust and safety operations, meaning that they affect what the world sees in their Facebook feeds. Senior staff writer at Mint Press News, Alan McLeod, did an investigation into what this could all mean, and he's here to tell us more about it. Welcome, Alan. Thanks for joining us. Um, So do me a favor and walk me through the kind of so what about this. Why is this a big deal?
7: Yeah, sure. I mean, some people say, well, it's not really a big deal. Casinos hire ex-card sharks all the time to protect Mm. them from scams and whatnot. But, you know, the people that uh, Facebook are hiring are not, um, they're not whistleblowers. They're not people who have, like, uh, turned the other cheek. A lot of the time they are actually being uh, taken straight from the CIA and put into important positions in Facebook with regards to content moderation and security and trust and safety. It's not like they're going into sales or customer service or anything. It's very politically uh, sensitive fields. Why this is a problem is, of course, is that the CIA has a terrible track record from everything from organizing coups to running black sites all over the world, to uh, even just planting a load of false information into the Mm. public domain uh, to suit their own agenda. And so, The very fact that the same people who are doing this, presumably, are now being, um, you know, um, we're now, you know, relying on these people to tell us what's fact and fiction and to sort um, truth from from falsehoods online is very, very uh, worrying indeed, especially when you look at the CIA's long history of infiltrating media organizations as well.
0: Well, and especially given the fact that we're living through a time where the federal government is giving a lot of uh, maybe not explicit but at least implicit instruction to social media companies saying you know the we're worried about for instance covid elections we're worried about misinformation um you know we want you to to show less of this or less of that you know we don't we we want we don't want misinformation out there on those topics so, the more, uh, kind of, gov- you know, f- recently former government employees that these companies take on, you know, those people still have contacts, right, with their, with their friends and coworkers in the CIA and law enforcement. So, so that's, it's an easier chain of kind of command would say, oh yeah, just tell, you know, Phil now works at, at, at Facebook, fear the government. Phil now works there. So we can just, just let him know that this is, this is misinformation, this whole Russia thing, you know, maybe they should really, uh, crush that on the platform, right? Is that, a, is that the concern?
7: I think that's absolutely a worry. Now, don't get me wrong, there is an absolute ton of misinformation all over Facebook and online. But the fact that um, these people are now in charge of um, what we're seeing and what we're hearing on our news should really concern everyone, especially people who are more civil libertarian minded. I think really we should see this as a kind of arm's length control of social media whereby the government doesn't have formal uh, control over the algorithms that really dictate our lives. But when uh, former government agents are now in charge of that, that's really an interesting arm's length tactic that we have, whereby the government can fall back on a position and say, well, you know, Facebook's a private company, it can do what it wants, but also it can exert influence in very quiet and... um, uh, very opaque ways in which we probably aren't really aware of what's going on, and I think that's one of the reasons why this should really concern everyone.
1: Alan, is it your understanding that that is why Facebook is doing this because there is some sort of in you know the government has signaled that it wants it to you know is that is that is it that causal? Why what what why is, has Facebook? to to your best knowledge, chosen this route. um, How conspiratorial is it?
7: Well, I don't think we even have to look at it through a conspiratorial lens. Uh, For Facebook, you have to admit that there is a very limited amount of people who really know about cybersecurity issues and trust and safety and really how the internet works. And a good deal of them do work for government agencies like the NSA or the FBI or the military or indeed the CIA. So for Facebook, uh, there is, you know, it's a difficult field to really find experts in. And a lot of them do have government contacts. But for the government, of course, it uh, really works out absolutely brilliantly for them, whereby there clearly must be some kind of deal either that Facebook is deliberately and actively recruiting from Mm -hmm. the CIA and the FBI, because so many of the people I found were on a Monday going into CIA headquarters in Langley and on a Tuesday starting their job at Mm. Facebook. So ultimately, I don't think we need to even see it as a conspiratorial angle. We just have to look at the, the facts, and then you can draw your own conclusions. And even if you're not even 1% conspiracy-minded, this should concern you.
0: How would you respond to what I assume is you know the line that these companies would use to say, well, this is why we're doing this? I'm sure they'll say, well, we need experts in security in intelligence to improve our defenses against you know being hacked, uh, you know criminals, maybe foreign governments you know we need the best people and that it's about improving our own security. What would be your response to that?
7: Well what I'd say to that is security from whom? Sure it might be great for security from uh, Chinese hackers or Iranian uh, bloggers but it's not security from the enormous uh, agencies in Washington that are of Mm -hmm. course trying to influence the internet as well. And so ultimately, you know, we might be secure from uh, foreign threats, but we're not secure from what our own government is doing. And ultimately, If this was the case, that Facebook was hiring people from the FSB or the GRU or from any Russian agency, we would immediately see this as a massive uh, threat and something that Facebook shouldn't be doing. But ultimately, we somehow don't see it when it's uh, the American government doing that.
1: Alan, can you give us a sense of the scope? Like how many people actually did you find? Like what is give us a sense of the scope?
7: Well, it wasn't exactly, uh, you know, a a super detailed investigation. It was literally just uh, going to LinkedIn and a lot of other um, web platforms, the employment based uh, social media and just uh, typing in Facebook and CIA and seeing how many people come up. And honestly, there were hundreds of results of mm. people and probably half of them were, um, were relevant. So ultimately I was able to find dozens of people who were once uh, working at the CIA and now work at Facebook. And it's not like these people were low level pen pushers either. They were going into, for the most part, very politically sensitive fields like trust and safety, like content moderation or security. And so ultimately, I think uh, these people do know what they're doing, but ultimately, this is a huge operation to the point where it's very difficult to see where Silicon Valley ends and where the national security state starts. Hmm.
1: It's just so refreshing to hear someone doing like old fashioned reporting that yields such important results. So kudos to you. Really great reporting here.
7: Thank you very much. And I would say that uh, maybe you feel like I'm picking on Facebook or and the CIA. This is actually happening at so many other social media sites as well, and I've written about it as well. It's not just the CIA too, it's the F- uh, FBI, the NSA, uh, the Department of Defense as well. So there are these connections being um, established all the time. And there's. For the most part, a, a much bigger interlocking network of, uh, of uh, national security, state, and big tech um, uh, com- uh,
0: combinations nowadays. Mm-hmm. Alan McLeod, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you. And we'll have more rising in just a minute. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband is back in the news, and this time it's not for getting lost in the sauce. Business Insider is reporting that Mr. Pelosi exercised millions of dollars in NVIDIA call options and sold large quantities of Apple and Visa options and shares in late June, according to a new congressional financial disclosure. The House Speaker filed the transaction Thursday. It comes as the Senate nears a vote on a computer chip bill.
1: The Senate Democrats are planning to vote on the bill this week, according to Politico. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said the vote would move forward with $52 billion in funding for chip factories, as well as a tax credit for semiconductor production. What is your take on this, Robbie?
0: Yeah, it's, it's um, always jarring to me when I find out that the Democrats, uh, and I'm sure it's a problem on the Republican side as well, but Democrats you know, inveighing against tech malfeasance or, you know, the, the uh, on both labor issues and sort of election interference and, e- you know, everything. There's so much condemning of the tech sector. It's actually very bipartisan, but the condemning on, on, from the Democrats, and then you find out that they're invested in all these companies, heavily invested. Uh, the Pelosi's are major tech uh, investors. I, I believe, I mean, I just Googled it. I, they, have, they have Google, they have Disney. Um, I... I I thought that some at one point that that they had uh, Meta as well. Um, I can't quickly Google that and verify it, but I thought they did. Um, so it's just kind of interesting that the people who are being turned to by a public that is frustrated with tech companies and wants some kind of maybe I guess wants some kind of actually I'm not even sure how much actual appetite there is for regulation of tech companies among people. I think most people like the, we might you and I might disagree on this. I think most people. Kind of like these companies, and, and don't have the negative or the the extremely hostile negative um, uh, view of them that some of the most online people, uh, the online commentary have. But anyway, the the regulators, the people who are being trusted to to adjudicate these matters, are totally financially tied down by them in a in a in a to a degree where it's obviously they're not capable of separating their personal financial interests. From, from the regulations being discussed.
1: It is so appalling and so disgusting that the people in charge of making these decisions stand to benefit one way or the other to the tune of billions of dollars. Um, I will say this isn't only um, when it comes to this chip bill. I mean, this is a very, very important bill because Mm -hmm. the problem is, is that we don't manufacture the chips that we need um, and we don't manufacture the chips that we need in a military context. So our military is 100% dependent on China for these semiconductor chips that we use in order to have the strongest military in the world which is extremely important. And when you consider the fact that China is our number one adversary, right, on the global stage, the idea that we rely on them for our military is very problematic. It's not just foreign policy, though. You know, uh, uh, this, this bill could single-handedly bring back huge parts of the American manufacturing sector. Um, it's a really important bill. Um, but but um, 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 what you've seen is Mitch McConnell threatening to hold it up when it looked like Joe Manchin was going to go along with the Democrats and fund some of the climate change initiatives and build back better. That was disgusting. I mean, it was totally appalling to hold something that is so important to the American working class and American foreign policy hostage because you don't mm-hmm. like where somebody might be going on a totally different front. That was appalling. But you then look at the Democrats, right? And they're totally, it's the opposite, right? Well, maybe they're going to try to push this bill, but that's because they're, they're, they're milking it for billions and billions of dollars, right? So it's like, you look here at cynicism, you look here, cynicism plus billions of dollars. It's really, really, really appalling. And, you know, it's no wonder that the American people have so little trust and so little respect for their elected leaders, because there's something like this happening behind every curtain. And I'll just say one more thing, which is that, you know, Nancy Pelosi was very reluctant to join into a a bipartisan bill that would seek to bar members of Congress and their spouses from exactly. Exactly these kinds of, you know, just, just cartoon villainry, right? Just cartoonish in how, how dark it is, you know, leveraging the fortunes of America's downwardly mobile, struggling middle class to enrich yourself when you're already a millionaire with millions upon millions. I'm sorry, I had to get that off my chest.
0: <laughs> no, and, and absolutely a Republican problem there as well. I mean, think of the Republican senators that, you know, being briefed about how bad the pandemic actually. Actually, is going to be the, the first you know the first thing they do is not inform their constituents, is not start working on a bill to to you know get enough uh, protective equipment, but to call their broker or call their brother who calls the broker you know so it's technically above board or whatever. Utterly despicable, craven behavior from our our legislators um, uh, as usual. I don't know uh, nearly as much about um, this chip building bill uh, the, the chip manufacturing bill as you do and and maybe it, you know because of national security reasons it would make sense to if we could do more of that manufacturing here i'm always very innately skeptical of the idea of bringing back manufacturing to the us i think we are far too down the rabbit hole of you know everything from environmental impact reports and 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 mi- minimum wage and regulations all sorts of things that uh the, the the working uh the, the labor sector has demanded but as a consequence then there was a lot of offshoring and moving things other places Um, I mean, I guess that that is a problem in a world where we're going to have some kind of confrontation with China. It it harkens back to like the, uh, what is it, uh, Catch-22, the book Catch-22, where the the character Milo has like everything manufactured everywhere and he stages fake like wars between the Nazis and and the U.S. forces where they find out that it was all done for some benefit for the Milo Minderbinder Corporation and uh, anyway, uh, so it's, (laughs) that's not good. But uh, I, don't, I, I think it's a pipe dream to ever have a lot of uh, manufacture back in the U.S. I just think there's not the, the political will to change the bureaucratic structures that would be needed, that would be necessary to do it in order to have it here.
1: Yeah. So this is, I think, one of those areas where you and I disagree because, um, you know, currently there are something like 175,000 unfilled manufacturing jobs right now, right? There's a very tight labor market for manufacturing, which means that those jobs are going to be paying more and more, especially skilled labor. And I think that um, it's not a pipe dream at all. And the funny thing is, is that the energy for bringing manufacturing back is now on the right, right? You know, Trump Mm -hmm. sort of took this axe to the neoliberal order, right? And he said, no. Where you know, the working class is going to become our voters and started to really invest in what would it look like to take on bringing manufacturing back? Well, you would put tariffs on China, tariffs on China, check, right? You'd get rid of NAFTA, got rid of NAFTA, check. And all of these things, you saw immediately that they had an impact on the wages of the bottom 25%, which increased by 4.5% in 2019, which was like an unheard of amount for, you know, decades. So I don't think it's a dream at all. It's just a question of political willpower and for so long the political willpower on both sides was in the kind of stuff i think that you really like robbie Uh right the idea that the market you know is kind of uber alles. right you have to leave the market alone you know the market is sort of like a deity you don't want to you don't want to upset the market by controlling it or by acting like you know you get to tell the market what to do you listen to the market it tells you what to do and i think now we're starting to see a shift towards. What I like more, which is no, like there's no, there's, there's, there's a gap between market and government, but it's not totally, you know, separate. Those things are not in any way separate. Offshoring jobs, right? Sending them off, you know, to NAFTA, right? That was government, you know, the gov that was government decisions facilitating that, you know, free trade, right? So it's almost a misnomer to call it mm-hmm. free trade. And it the impact on the working class. I just feel like it's very, it's hard to deny it.
0: Well, great discussion, as always, and we'll have more rising right after this. Well, Fauci has hinted that he might retire by the end of the Biden administration, or the end of Biden's (laughs) first term, possibly only term, of course, we have no idea. Uh, That was in an interview uh, that he gave to Politico, where he hinted at it, and it kind of sounds like he doesn't have a lot of stomach for the Whatever kinds of reviews or, or hearings or you know oversight measures are going to be taken, if and when Republicans are back in control of the government, and he he said something like he thinks that it's perhaps less likely that they're going to be so interested in going after him if he is uh, no longer the in that role that he's been in for you know a million Why not? years.
5: Why not retire now then? Because it's likely that Republicans are going to take over Congress. Right. So uh, that's when they're going to hold hearings. I mean, if Republicans get in, tr- in control of the House, you can forget about all of these January 6 hearings that we're seeing right now and replace them. Right with COVID response hearings and probably Hunter Biden, yeah, and and maybe Hunter Biden. You know, there's going to be a few others, but that would be. It seems like now would be the time to. I mean, really, honestly, ten years ago, fifteen years ago. How old is he now? He's eighty-one years old. So many years ago was the time to retire, but certainly, I would say sooner than later. I I have
1: to say, I, I can't get past the idea that for him, the retirement is not about any like self-reflection, on his part about the job that he's done. It's only about his professional standing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there's no mm-hmm. part of him that's like, you know, that initial lie about masks not being effective. I really want to take responsibility for that, right? Or like, you know, well, we really did overdo it in this way or in that way, and I'm gonna step down it's only about his professional standing, which I think speaks so much to like where the Democrats are at, who they're speaking to and who they're made their ranks are made up of, right? It's this like careerism at the end of the day has replaced any kind of accountability any kind of values in terms of like judging whether you've done a good job or not
0: yeah i mean his whole thing was we're going to eventually get to herd immunity through vaccination that was the fauci promise and so that's hinted at in this piece now he's kind of admitting uh that that's not going to happen that you know he he says in this interview that if i was going to be because he said you know he was going to stay in power until the COVID 19 pandemic was over and and now he says well that i'd be 105 by then because it's not ever (laughs) at least for the next quarter century there's going to be some covid Uh, it's you know probably likely or based on where the trajectory is right now it's not going to be you know Killing tons and tons of people. There's lots of ways to to protect yourself. It's you know a, a not a serious illness for most healthy or young people who get it now, but it's not going to be zero cases or just like a couple dozen cases. You know we have outbreaks of old diseases, but it do, you know it doesn't take over the whole world. That's not the situation we're getting to. Contrary to what he said, so many things he said over the course of the pandemic just turned out to be. Wrong or misleading. Uh, so I don't know. I I think he actually should be kind of exiting in a cloud of of uh, negative sort of vibes. He was a very uh, uh, not a lot of good things I can say about this public figure to be not only to that, be frank. I,
5: if I were the Democrats, I would actually be asking him to step aside now. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want him to stick around as a Democratic Party until the end of Biden's term. Because he's a liability at this point, right? Because of many of the things that you mentioned, Robbie. So yeah, that's true. A guy of Joe that, Biden too, though. <laughs> well, <laughs> sure, but but I mean, if the Democrats hold on to Fauci, they, yeah. they risk having the the optics that they're still, which maybe maybe true at this point still, that they're still very much holding on to these responses. I think that might be true, just because of. Some of the rhetoric that is still coming out of the democratic party calling people like myself who said the vaccines don't stop the spread calling me still a conspiracy theorist well which conspiracy was i peddling at that time but because they continue down these narratives you know uh, smearing people painting people being very aggressive about the entire pandemic and blaming others when they were the ones that were calling for certain things that were that were demanding mandates and and certain things that did not work that were unnecessary so to hold on to fauci it's like propping up that response still saying no we were right you were wrong when they were so obviously wrong so he's a liability i mean and le- like i said unless they're still at that point in their mentality if i were them i would say we got to cut ties we have to move on this didn't this wasn't accurate it wasn't correct and now we need to move forward and show the american people that we're moving forward but instead they're holding on to this and it will cost them voters
0: yeah but the democrats just don't understand and maybe you can speak to this botcha i mean there's so much self-sabotage in terms of messaging and just like good strategic thinking, right? They just, they don't seem to get what like the mood of the country is on so many subjects. Uh, You know, the Fauci is now this incredibly polarizing figure.
1: I think that um, they fear that because the pandemic response was so politically polarized for a while, that if they admit that they made any mistakes you know, people will think, oh, we can't trust them, they made mistakes, when the exact opposite is the case. If they had said from the beginning, Listen. The scientific method means we're gonna try things. Some are gonna work. Mm-hmm. Some are not. We're gonna admit what we get wrong, and then we're gonna learn from that and move forward, right? That if they had started like that, people would have forgiven them for their errors. But instead, every time something that they drummed home turned out to be false. For example, what you just brought up, Kim. You know, the idea that you can't people who are vaccinated can't transmit the disease, right? Which is false. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but for so long they were calling people "grandma killers" who said that. you know that they couldn't then just say oh actually we got that wrong you know what you guys were right Right, that's the sentence that they can't say. You guys got that right. And I think that that's such a moral failing. And you know, it really speaks to the death of expertise. I mean, Fauci really, really embodies like this figurehead saying, you remember when he said, I represent the science, which is like the most unscientific (laughs) sentence. I am the
0: science.
1: (laughs) Right, you know, that you could imagine in the English language, you know, the death of expertise and the resurgence of, you know, a populace that trusts each other more than. And they trust figureheads, because that is how the pandemic ended, because the American people said, we're done with this. The experts right. were still saying, wear the masks, do the this, get five you know doses of the vaccine. And the American people said no. And they won and they trusted each other to know when it was over.
5: And, you know, on top of, look, uh, to be fair, right, neither side will ever admit that they're wrong. We never hear no. I was wrong coming totally, from Republicans yeah, yeah, or from yeah, Democrats. Yeah, totally, yeah. But the difference is, is, and, and why I think some of the blame goes on Democrats when, it, you know, they're a little bit more to blame or, or can be, you know, they're more hypocritical about it is because they're the ones that then say, you know, they're part of their ethos is, no, we're following science. Right. <laughs> we're the ones following truth, facts, science. And so when you say that, when you make those claims... And then you're unwilling to go and say, OK, we were, you know, this was what the science now shows and we were wrong. Then you are a hypocrite. Republicans never really make themselves. They do make themselves into in hypocrites in certain ways. Like we would see that era where, you know, you'd have the good old family man Republican and he's like family values and we want America to be all about. It. And then he's like cheating on the side. Right. And We all catch him. So there is a hypocrisy there on the Republican side. But they don't. They But everything else, they pretty much tell you flat out what they think and what they want. And then they don't they don't go back on that. But Democrats will tell you something else to your face. Do something else behind your back. And that is where they're rubbing so many. I think many of us who voted Democrat, who always have supported Democrats, many of us now saying, forget it. I can't even respect the party. I just have so much for me personally. I have so much contempt and just try not to. But I do. Well, my my issue with Republicans
0: is that they often talk about doing things that I'd want them to do. They have this, you know, they really fiery tweets. And then that's all it is. That's the entire agenda. Like there are like is a a Republican administration actually going to dismantle the CDC or reform the FDA or do any of these things? Or are they just going to like rant a
5: lot of that? They do a lot of this. I mean, Republicans actually- Oh, please. Actually, no, they don't. They haven't oh, wait, shrunk yeah. government
0: sure. one iota in a billion What's years. Wrap? They've never done a thing. They don't do a thing. They say they're all talk. They're all blustered. They're just to get you fired up.
5: They're, it's no, I have zero faith. If you look at the most recent claims that Republicans said that they were going to do, over the last, let's say, you know, eight years or so, you had Paul Ryan actually write new tax, right? D- overhauled the tax system. That actually did happen. They promised that would happen, and it did happen. Same thing with Roe v. Wade. They promised it for decades, and it did happen. So Republicans well, that was the, actually the Supreme do work. Like, I'm, ta- well, sure. I'm talking about the federal. But at the state plan.
0: level, some Republic Ron DeSantis has done things Republicans want, certainly in Florida. Just at the national level, I think you know whoever the presidential figure is and whoever the Congress is. They don't seem to. They they don't reform the federal bureaucracy, which I, mean, I, I think is the. I mean, at Donald Trump.
5: Donald Trump got into office. He promised he would put in a bunch of pro life judges. He did it. I mean, they look. I don't agree with it, with a lot of the stuff that the Republicans are doing, but they. I, I think when they I look delivered at them from party judges, to they delivered on judges. They have never
0: delivered on uh, size of the bureaucracy. Reform. Size of the bureaucracy is just out well, of Trump control. Trump was
5: trying to. He did a lot of eliminating. He kind of took a lot of the mm-hmm. Reagan mm-hmm. style. I, uh, I mean, I think, I he, think did. he did. He did roll back and eliminate a lot of stuff. But I mean, I wish he had. You, I don't think you're wanting him. Well, because your idea as a libertarian is to get rid of the entity entirely. Right. So you're not saying it back. TSA first.
0: CDC next. FDA a shell of its former self. Then we'll talk. When Republicans do that, then I'll say, OK, mission accomplished. Great job. No, I don't want I
5: mean. I don't want them to do any of that, of what you're asking well, for. I like to, I, I think a world with well, regulations that's, is Well, this is necessary. why you like Republicans more than I do. <laughs> well, I, no, I, 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 yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe as a libertarian, maybe you just hate everybody. I don't know I do. wants I any regulation.
0: loathe entirely. Uh, all right, well, we'll find out what's on your radar next, Kim. Stay tuned for that.
5: Kim, what is on your radar? All right, listen, sanctions like the ones we have on Russia and Iran and Cuba, they don't work. Not only do they not work, they often achieve the opposite effect. They harm our economy, and most importantly, they put our national security at risk. Now, I get it. Maybe you want to punish bad leaders of foreign countries without having to wage actual war, and cutting them off from the global economy seems like a better alternative. It's potentially far more damaging to the U.S., and we should stop. So in order to understand this, let me first tell you what sanctions are exactly. Sanctions can be against entire countries, government leaders and representatives, random individuals, wealthy business people, companies, or even industries. For example, I'm sure you're aware we've been sanctioning Cuba over Fidel Castro, North Korea since the Korean War, Iran since the fall of the Shah. Most recently, we've been sanctioning Russia because of the war in Ukraine. But we also sanction government leaders, for example, There are several Chinese officials who are sanctioned over Hong Kong and the Uyghurs. The U.S. government also chooses to sanction wealthy people, such as Russian oligarchs, companies accused of engaging in fraudulent or corrupt practices, and even specific industries can be sanctioned. As it stands right now, one in 10 countries are under some form of U.S. sanctions. Now, the sanctions can be in the form of banning trade, freezing assets, heavier taxation, or prohibiting financial dealings. This part's important to understand. The way we go about doing this is we actually ban American companies and American people from trading or financially dealing with anyone on the list of countries, companies and individuals. The government can't control them, but the government can control us. So the government also uses secondary sanctions by threatening allies. For example, we tell Europeans to join in on our sanctions or face sanctions themselves. We sound like really charming friends. So if you operated a company that did a lot of business with these countries or individuals and suddenly there are sanctions on them, your company will obviously suffer financially. So if you're a manufacturer of some goods, for example, and you typically ship a fair amount over to Russia, now that we have sanctions on Russia, it's your responsibility as the American to stop shipping to them, not their responsibility to stop receiving them. So if you offer financial services, it's your responsibility to make sure none of your clients are on one of these lists. So just on the surface, sanctions are a burden to American companies and people who are constantly having to figure out who is on or off these lists. On top of this, sanctioning hurts American businesses who are now banned from doing any business with them. So do you think any, uh, any of this really hurts Russians when it comes to banning things like iPhones, Gucci bags, BMWs and Chanel perfume? Do you think that hurts them when it's banned from entering their country? I'm sure many Russians were upset that they couldn't get these luxury items, but it's not like they needed these things. But do you know who does need these luxury items? The the people who manufacture them, market them, and distribute them. All of the workers who are behind the operation of those companies are now at risk of losing their jobs because of lack of sales and business. If you were a shipping company and your primary client was Russia, you're probably out of business right now and all of your workers are laid off. Now, trade, of course, isn't only just luxury items. Lots of trade involves essentials like medicine, food and energy. Sanctions that involve these types of items not only hurt those who are manufacturing and distributing them, but they significantly hurt the poor people inside of the targeted nation. Wealthy people in those countries will always have access to the things they need. It's the poor who suffer. But that's actually the point. One idea is to cause so much suffering amongst the population that the government eventually feels enough compassion to stop the pain. And in order to stop the pain, they have to stop whatever it is that caused them to be sanctioned in the first place. The other idea is to cause so much pain in the population that the population rises up and topples the government under the hope that if, the new government, that if a new government were installed, the sanctions would stop. But they don't work. We've been implementing these sanctions on several nations for decades now, and what are the results? In many instances, when it's essential medicine or food that's involved, we end up being perceived by the world as heartless bullies. On top of this, did Cuba ever topple the Castro government? Is the Ayatollah of Iran no longer in power? Is Assad no longer the president of Syria? What about North Korea? What good has it done there? These sanctions have not worked as intended. In all of the cases I just mentioned, the people of those countries have not turned on their own leaders. They know the U.S. is causing the sanctions. They're not stupid. So rather than blaming their own governments, they instead blame, get this, the U.S. You could insist that it's not true, that instead their governments are brutal dictators that don't care about the suffering of their own people. But then I would have to ask, if that's the case, why are we punishing the people on top of them being punished by their own government? Isn't the point of sanctions to get their government to stop abusing them? So why add to it? But honestly, we could debate back and forth all day how these people feel or what their governments are like. The bottom line is, their governments are intact, even after decades of U.S.-imposed sanctions. They haven't worked. So why are we continuing to use a tool that doesn't work? But here's where sanctions become an issue of national security. The only reason the U.S. can use sanctions as a weapon and compel allies to go along with them or else is because the U.S. dollar is the world reserve currency. Most global trade is conducted in dollars, so it's harder to ignore sanctions or get around them. Everyone wants dollars because everyone can spend dollars, particularly on oil, which has much, which has Pretty much been nearly exclusively exchanged in dollars after a deal was struck between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. We agreed to give them security. They agreed to sell us oil. They agreed to sell oil in U.S. currency. And because of this, over the past 80 years, the dollar has remained extremely stable, valuable, and it gives the U.S. a lot of power. But sentiments towards the United States have shifted. Look at Saudi Arabia. They've been feeling pretty snubbed by the Biden administration, resulting in speculation over whether or not Biden would shake or fist bump the Saudi crown prince's hand while visiting the country. Why is Biden there? Well, quite frankly, he's there to beg for relief from high oil prices caused in part, by the way, by our sanctions on Venezuela, Iran and Russia and to repair relations now that Saudi Arabia is in accelerated talks with China to begin accepting yuan as payment for oil. The United States being so trigger happy to use our economic power against those we disagree with has caused many countries to begin moving away from the dollar out of fear they could be next on the naughty list. No one wants to get hit with sanctions, and no one wants to, and no one wants, and no one knows what's going to cause them to be hit with sanctions next. Now, countries won't be able to move away from the dollar overnight. Old habits die hard, but they're trying. The sanctions on Russia since in, since its invasion of Ukraine have actually accelerated de-dollarization. Countries trying to circumvent U.S. imposed sanctions with Russia are now trading in their own national currencies for the oil and wheat Russia provides. But de-dollarization efforts have been going on long before this war with Russia. China has struck deals with Australia, Japan, Brazil, Iran and others to trade in national currencies. Russia, China and other countries have been rapidly setting up alternative monetary systems since 2014, knowing that at any minute they could be hit with more U.S. sanctions. The world is looking for an alternative. The US dollar won't be ditched as a major global currency, but soon it won't be the only one. Once it's no longer needed to conduct global trade, it will drastically lose its value. Right now, we rely on countries, China being one of the biggest, to support our deficit spending with massive loans. They'll only continue doing this if the dollar remains valuable because it's needed to conduct global trade. We also need the dollar to remain strong so that the things we buy from other countries, which is just about everything, will remain affordable. Essentially, if the dollar is no longer in highest demand, we, the American people, feel the effect's the strongest. We're talking extremely high inflation. And quite frankly, some of the inflation we're feeling right now could be be because this process has already begun. So we need to stop using the power of being the world's reserve currency as a weapon and start earning the goodwill in the community of nations the goodwill we've been squandering since World War II. We need to earn respect in the world by insisting our government reflect the will of the good and fair American people. And we also need to insist that our politicians stop firing off their weapons of all kinds, be they monetary or physical, and start thinking about what ramifications their decisions have on not only the innocent people in these foreign countries, but on us, the American people. So I'm curious, Bacha and Robbie, how do, what do you guys think about U.S. sanctions? I mean, in my mind, obviously, they're not working, and they're harmful and damaging. Should we continue doing them?
0: No. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree with you, Kim. Um, I, I've said this many times, and the Cuban example is the best, right? If, if fifty, more than 50 years, more than half a century of trying to persuade, the, uh, of putting, you know, uh, even worse than sanctions, a, a full embargo on the regime in order to inspire the people to rise up and overthrow the regime. If it didn't work for more than half a century, why would it work ever anywhere else? Right. It just makes no, it just, it doesn't work. It's like you said, it inspires resentment of the U.S., not of the dictators, but just of the U.S. And it, do, it, do, it doesn't work, does not seem to work.
1: Um, what's your yeah, take on him? I think I'm with both of you. I, I wouldn't say that I, I have a kind of like blanket approach to this i think each case should be approached individually but to me i i just have no appetite for us being the moral police of the world when here at home we don't have enough like like morality to look at our fellow Americans and make decisions that would be best for them. So to me, like, I I liked your approach, Kim, because in each case, it seemed that you were saying, look, these are immoral because of what they do to the poor in these countries, but also because of what they do in terms of the interests here at home. They are not in our interests. I think that the sanctions on Russia are the perfect example of that. You know, I'm sorry, but I am still not convinced that you know, that funding that war forever is more moral than making sure that my fellow American can drive their children to school. I, I just have not yet been convinced by that. And so I think the question especially oh, yeah. in this moment when gas is up sixty percent and is, you know, the primary cause behind inflation being at nine point one percent historically, right? a lot of these questions are coming up. And I I think that, you know, there wasn't a lot that you said that I disagreed with. It was just that, you know, I think each case really should be approached individually. Um, And the number one question should be, I mean, you know, like President Trump said, you know, like, is this in our interests? Like our number one concern should be our our fellow Americans.
5: Hmm. And I wanna say, I I do think it's maybe a little bit too late, unfortunately. I think that we've been using these sanctions as a weapon for so long that now, you know these countries have been building up alternatives and and seeking other uh, types of currency to to trade in, and they've been they've been doing this for the last eight years to a decade. I mean they've they've all kind of caught on to the sanctions thing, and now that process is is rapidly happening, um, and so I, I think what we have to do is kind of focus on stopping the bleeding on that. But definitely right now we Americans have been riding high on the hog for a while, and our politicians as well, and this will come back to bite us soon and when it and when we start feeling even higher inflation because of this because of the dropping or the just backing off i mean i don't think the us is going to be replaced as the global reserve currency i just don't think it'll be the only one i think the hegemony will be broken up and that will be that will mean more selection and that'll just mean increased inflation for us americans and i think that's coming really soon we're seeing it maybe now and when it really takes full effect as China rises and as they strengthen their ally their their relationships with other countries around the world I think many Americans are going to look back and point directly at sanctions and say this was the major downfall of, mm-hmm. of U.S. foreign policy. It came down to sanctions. So mark my words, 10 years from now, there'll be many discussions all around the news saying we shouldn't have done that. We shouldn't have done that.
0: Well, shouldn't. <laughs> shouldn't have done it. We're having that discussion today. <laughs> and again, probably a decade from now. Oh, no. All right. I'm thank you very happy. much, Kim. We'll have more rising right after this. King of Podcasts, Joe Rogan, had this to say recently about Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Let's listen.
2: Canada's communist. Canada's crazy. They're fucked. They're fucked. They got to get rid of that guy. How much time does he have? I feel like he's been prime minister for a while. Am I wrong? I don't know. I don't know how their system works up there. I have zero understanding of their system. Yeah? I never looked into it at all. I just, I didn't even, I, I liked him. I liked him before the pandemic. Trudeau? yeah yeah i was like he's a handsome guy yeah seems sweet yeah you know it's like good good looking guy confident good talker yeah and then during the pandemic i'm like oh you're a fucking dictator yeah oh you don't like criticism you're trying to shut down criticism by saying that all your critics are misogynists and racists yeah he said that about the trucking people the truckers he called them called them all misogynists and racists yeah he's gross he's a sketchy guy yeah, and he's got some fucking shaky deals. I would like to see like where the money is coming from. Like, why? Why do you want everybody to get injected every four months? They don't need that anymore. Like, what are we doing? What are you doing? You can't even get into Canada unless you're vaccinated. Can't get in? No. Make sure that's true because someone just told me. Whitney just told me she wanted to. She had to show her fucking vaccination card to get into Canada. That seems. It's a little. Like it adds up for it's the- old. Yeah. Like, this is where, it's 2022, it's not 2019. You know where it, it still feels, because um, I think things sway there so aggressively when, thing, when something happens, um, where it feels like, you're like, wait, what time is it right now? Is in New York. I was just in New York. Oh, yeah. Everywhere. Everyone was masked up everywhere. I was like, what's going on? Why yeah. is everyone still masked up?
0: So uh, we might be bleeping some of those words, I think, before this uh, goes live. I, I, so hopefully you didn't uh, – well, or hopefully you did. I don't care. It's for uh, it's for whatever our television standards are. Anyway, interesting sentiments from uh, Joe Rogan. I just Googled it. It does look to me I, – I thought Canada's requirement that you need to get vaccinated to enter I, – I, I had thought that had maybe lapsed, but I just Googled it. It looks like it still is the case. And obviously – Non-Americans coming to America actually also have to be vaccinated still, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, But uh, there you have it. What did you make of Rogan's uh, comments there, Baca? You
1: You know, I too started to see uh, Justin Trudeau in a very different light after the truckers' convoy. You know, before that, I had thought that he was a sort of like, um, you know, a kind of like like flabby liberal, right? Like, you know, how much harm could this person already do, right? <laughs> in human rights, like, you know, he has a weird way of expressing himself, maybe very much in that sort of college educated manner. But, you know, how much harm could a person with these kind of like human rights values actually do? And what we saw was, he descended into this total caricature of what you know. I've been calling, we've been calling the laptop cast, the pajama class, right? You know, somebody who misunderstands his obsession with COVID as ju- as some sort of like um, you know virtue, when actually what it is is elites enforcing um, their standards on the very people who they rely on to keep them alive, right? And then exactly like Rogan said, he he smeared those truckers as fascists and Nazis, because they had this populist wellspring of support against this very, you know, elite top down, I'm going to enforce on you while relying on you to survive, I'm going to tell you what to do while I need you. And I think that it was sort of like that truckers convoy. And now what you're seeing in the Netherlands with the farmers, like there really is an uprising, a populist uprising against the elites happening, you know, across the globe um, and what, when Trudeau sort of leaned into his kind of authoritarian, um, you know, condescension, rather than accepting the criticism and recalibrating, that to me was like it was a really telling moment because it put the lie to my previous thoughts of like, well, how much pr- how much trouble could this liberal actually get? You know, how much could this you know person with these liberal values? How much could he actually hurt people? And the answer was a lot, he could hurt them a lot. And I think that 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 thing where he now represents that sort of elite condescension that has a kind of semi-authoritarian side to it, that doesn't only call the working class Nazis and racists for objecting to their own oppression, right? But actually forces them to put something in their body that maybe they don't want to or not be able to feed their families. Like this is something that's emerging. It's emerging here as well and it's really dangerous.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I I think it shows how this kind of political figure, this kind of candidate, is losing voters that Mm -hmm. that the Democratic, or in Canada it's not Democratic, but the the liberal uh, coalition, the blue coalition, needs to stay in power. If someone like Joe Rogan, who, let's remember, even though now he's associated and like, you know, tarred as this right wing figure, was a supporter, uh, favorably disposed toward Bernie Sanders, and has said that, you know, multiple times. And for him to be kind of pushed into, into a kind of more Team Red coalition, it's taken actions like what Justin Trudeau and I'm, I'm sorry, also many Democrats in the US have done with, with respect to kind of identity politics. COVID and some other topics that are pushing um, independent-minded left and, and populist people Toward the Republican Party, it's it's because of this stuff. It's because of you know over the top wokeness, um, uh, craziness on COVID, disdain for working people who are protesting or treating their protests like you know it's it's the end of the world when they celebrated um, uh, uh, the Black Lives Matter police injustice protests were celebrated, other protests were derided. That is had an effect. You're seeing that effect in people like. Like Rogan, and, and we, you know, we talk about him a lot in the show because he's a big audience. His audience overlaps um, somewhat, at least I think, with our own. So it's it's interesting to follow the trajectory. But the trajectory should be concerning if you're a Democrat, isn't it? Isn't it terrifying? And instead of seeing. Uh, panic from Democrats that they're losing these people. What I see is almost a a contempt. Well, good riddance. They're racist. We don't want them as part of our team anyway. We we want our team to be only the most morally pure, upstanding, identity-driven people, and they're going to be down to a coalition of, like, 16.
1: right we know from pew that only six percent of americans are what we would consider what they would consider progressive six percent it's so teensy compared to the amount of attention that they take up on our airwaves you know I, i totally agree with you robbie i think for for decades the the left represented the kind of commonsensical obvious point of view that was not reflected in reality that every human deserves to live in dignity That was a left-wing proposition that the right did not agree with, right? For many, many decades, um, you know, they didn't believe in gay rights, let's say, you know, equal Mm -hmm. equal, equality for, for gay Americans. They didn't believe in, you know, equal protections for women. They didn't believe in, they were not as concerned with civil rights. You know, the civil rights movement was opposed by many Republicans, which is when the Democrats got that lock on black voters, right? All of these are commonsensical, obvious ideas you know they're they're they're, you know thousands and thousands of years old right the idea that we're all created equally in god's image and we all deserve to live in dignity that was a left-wing proposition for decades that is now an idea that the left kind of to me, anyway, seems opposed to, right? You know, if you talk about Dr. King's vision that we be judged based on our character, not the color of our skin, forget it. They consider that to be racist now. If you tell them that, you know, women deserve to live, you know, in dignity with equality, they're like, well, what's a woman? You know, what about <sighs> trans women, right? You know, they're now the right has become of associated with the commonsensical idea that people should be able to live in dignity with autonomy, should be able to make their own decisions about what happens to their body and to their children, right? You know, that is now bizarrely become a right-wing proposition almost. And I think that that is something, that's exactly what you're pointing to. And nobody embodies that like Joe Rogan and the the shifting sands beneath him that had him once standing kind of on the liberal side and now sort of more identified with i don't want to say the right but certainly with mm-hmm. the populist uh, well, energy to, to that we're your seeing.
0: point i think progressives have lost the language a little bit of being able to talk about universal uh, principles because they're so focused on disparate harms to specific groups. so That's the way all problems have to be filtered through that. I, I think you saw that pretty clearly with like the messaging on uh, abortion rights going away or being rescinded where the ACLU starts tweeting about how this will disproportionately affect right. You know, LGBT people, etc., which makes no sense. You know, this is, you know, if, if you're going to make, if you're, you're someone who's going to argue that this is a bad thing and these rights going away are wrong, you can make a very universal case. This is this affects, you know, very, very much affects one of the two main like distinguishers of a whole human human, human beings, women. Uh, but they can't use that language because they're. If it doesn't affect a smaller minority group, that's what they're comfortable with criticizing, like, oh, this is a bad policy or bad idea because it harms this smaller interest group that we're very, that that are all of our language and all of our marketing and all of our activism is now oriented around protecting, which I'm not, and I'm not saying that, you know, you should, uh, uh, you know, be against those people or or do anything, but it's not, it's not additional. It's not in addition to normal. We're we're also going to look out for these people. It's like we can only talk about it if it's this kind of thing and that language is alienating to so many people
1: and i think robbie this ties into one of your bugaboos which is the masking you know you'll often hear people say well there are immunocompromised people we should all be invested in protecting them right like the idea that there is a subgroup that Mm -hmm. has an extra something an extra requirement an extra need and that everyone like 95% of people who are not immunocompromised should now change in order to accommodate that you know it reminds me a lot of when they talk about birthing persons mm-hmm. like you know in 10 years how many trans how many trans men are going to have had a baby is it going to rise to double digits mm-hmm. you know what i mean like it's such a tiny percentage of who's going to end up requiring that kind of language that kind of activism but everybody else is supposed to be involved in this sort of mass accommodation of this you know tiny right.
0: minority right right and I don't <laughs> right and you can acknowledge that because any rule any category you try to establish, there will always be exceptions yeah. but you know using you the overwhelming majority you know, of people who give birth are women and yeah there are because of of anatomy because there're always going to be exceptions there's always going to be edge cases but we don't, you know, we don't have to act like the main rule, or the main definition doesn't cover virtually all cases because it does, and it's that's not harmful. I don't think that's hateful to acknowledge. It's certainly not causing violence, despite you know what we was kind of uh, implied at. We're dancing around that hearing that took place last week between uh, Josh Hawley and that uh, and 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 that uh, doctor who uh, who he had that the interesting Berkeley
1: professor. Yes. Yes.
0: Interesting <laughs> conversation with. Um, All right. Well, tomorrow on Rising, uh, we're going to dig into what exactly is causing inflation, as we've heard different things from different economists on the left and the right. So we're going to have an expert panel discussing that. And thank you so much for being with us, Batya. It's always a pleasure to see you and uh, you'll be back with us next week.
1: It was so great to be here with you, Robbie. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content from Rising. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts and catch us on the Plex TV app as well.
0: Bye, everybody.